If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to start in the book of John, and so I just want to invite you there. Uh, but unlike, because, well, let me just pause and say, we're in this series called Directions, talking about making not just good decisions, but godly decisions. Um, and, and as I said last week, we are getting more and more practical as the series progresses. The, the part of that for today, uh, and next week it will be um, something similar, part of that for today is we're going to be jumping around the scriptures a little bit to try to make the point okay, that, that I wanted to. So here's what I need. Everybody just to you know, get your fingers all kind of warmed up, stretched out, get your hands, lick your thumbs if you need to do that, because we're going to be doing some flipping, okay? Um, we're going to start in the book of John, uh, but before we jump there, I have this question, and maybe we could get um, just some um, children-oriented feedback here. Who's, who's a good guesser? Which of you kids is a good guesser? Um, tell me, how far from the earth to the moon? Here. A billion miles. It's somewhere just short of that. Somebody else, how far from the earth to the moon? Uh, in the first service, somebody gave it an astronomical units, which is not cool at all, okay? Mainly because I have it in miles up here on my notes, and you don't, I don't know what astronomical units even are. So there. Uh, any other, anybody else? Oh, go ahead. Oh, a light year, a light year. No, it's not a light year away. One more, one more before I spill the beans here. From the earth to the moon, somebody. Go ahead, Wes. Five billion. No, it's very short of that. Uh, it's 240,000 miles, give or take a few miles. We can get there in three days in a spaceship. Uh, some of you can get there in a day with the way that you drive. So, I mean, it's just 240,000 miles. Uh, here's here's another one, another good guess. How far from the Earth to Pluto? Earth to Pluto. We'll even take adults guessing here. No googling, no googling. Now you, he cannot Google. Don't let him. Don't let him. How far from the Earth to Pluto? Somebody. A long way is the hundred percent right. Let's quantify that. I'm going to start calling on people. Richard Unger, how far from the earth to Pluto? That's exactly right. Further than you can walk. Somebody put a number to that, somebody. Wes was close a while ago. I'll give you a hint. Wes was close. Somebody? Y'all are shy this morning. What's the deal? Five billion. It's close to that. It's 4.7 billion miles. From here to Pluto. I, I, the moon, a mere 240,000 miles. Pfft, nothing, right? Pluto, 4.7 billion miles. I'm, I'm putting all that out there to say this. Uh, some of us live with this misconception that God somehow has placed his will that you and I are supposed to find out there beyond Pluto. <laughs> like, and these cosmic hide-and-seek God who's like, hey, good luck with that. It's 4.7 billion miles away. Here's what I'm here to tell you. That is a misconception. It is a misconception to think that God delights in hiding his will from those who would follow it. God, I really want to do your will, but I can't do 4.7 billion miles. It's too far for me to walk. It's out there. I'm sure it is, but I can't do it. I mean, I want to do it, but I can't, I can't, I can't find it. I don't know what it is. It's too far away. When, we, when you and I live with that kind of misconception that God somehow delights to hide His will from those who would choose to follow it, um, here's what it, it, it says something about God, and it says something about us. 
um, uh, the thing that it says about God is, is that we really don't know what, who he actually is because uh, the scripture describes God as our perfect father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. Does hiding his will out there beyond Pluto, does that sound like good gifts to his kids? Somebody? No, not at all. Not at all. Then, so not only do we have a perfect father, but also Jesus says of himself, um, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. So hiding his will out beyond Pluto does not sound like a friendly thing. Jesus says, specifically this in, in, the, in the book of John, he says, no longer do I call you slaves uh, because a slave doesn't know what his master's doing. I call you friends. And what's the implication? Because a friend knows what his friend is doing. That's right. And lastly, we've got the Father, we've got our friend, and then we've got what the, uh, who the Bible calls our counselor, the Holy Spirit, is our counselor or our guide, the one who comes alongside us. So he's walking with us in the middle of whatever we're in. So when we buy into this lie, into this misconception that God delights in somehow hiding his will from those who would follow it, we're saying that we don't actually know who God is and understand who he is or what he's like and what he wants for us. Folks, listen to me. He is a good, good father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. He is a friend who walks with us and lets us know what he's doing. And he is a counselor who helps us know the directions that we're supposed to go. That's who God is. But it doesn't just say that about God. It also says something about us. Because you and I live with this. It's kind of this cultural thing in particular. But you and I live with this um, infection. We live with this infection um, where we tell our stories as, uh, as stories of pain instead of stories of failure. If God's hiding his will out there, and this perpetuates this, if God's hiding his will out there beyond Pluto, then I can say, well, see, I really wanted to do God's will, but really it's too far out there and I didn't know what it was and I couldn't find it if I wanted to because it's way back there, 4.7 billion miles. I mean, that's a long way from here. And so I tell that I then become the victim and who's the perpetrator? God is. I tell my story as one of pain instead of one of failure. But the scripture all throughout does the exact opposite. It talks about our stories in terms of failure, not pain. It's a misconception to think that God somehow delights in hiding his will uh, for those, from those who would find it. Here's the thing, and I need this is the single point I want you to take home with you. He has revealed his will to us, and where do we find it? In his word, right here. So much so, this is the statement I want you to carry home. Those who know God's word the best will know his will the best. He has revealed his will to us in his word. So therefore, those who know his word the best will know his will the best. He's not hiding it beyond Pluto. The only question is not whether or not I can discover what it is. The only question is whether or not I will follow it. Because he doesn't hide it from those who will follow it. That's the only question is whether or not I will. So in John chapter 6 is where we're going to start. And as I said, today we're going to be jumping around a lot. It's just the nature of this particular um, teaching. And so just hang in there with me uh, as we do this. What then is God's will according to his word? That's the question. If he has revealed his will in his word, and people who know his word know his will, what then is his will? Verse 38, John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. And everybody ought to lean in just a little bit at that comma. When he hits that comma, we ought to be going, hmm, see what this is. That I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Uh, I didn't really say, but okay, verse 40, keep reading. For this is the will of my Father. Here we go, leaning in again. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So let's start here. I want to do God's will. I really want to. This is where it begins, that you and I would relate rightly to God. That's what it says. That you and I would be a people who relate rightly to God. That's his will. I want to get in God's will. I want to do what he wants for me. Good. Let's start with relating rightly to God. Here's the thing. Relating rightly to God does not depend upon all these works that I can kind of muster up and do myself, on these religious things that I would try, or these rituals that I would um, try to inject into my relationship. Every other, we'll talk about this in just a moment, every other uh, religious system talks about what you can do for God, and Christianity talks about what God has done for you in Jesus. That's the thing. What has he done? Well, he has come and lived a perfect life that you and I cannot live. He has died a perfect death in our place. We will celebrate this with communion in just a moment. He has died a perfect death in our place as a substitute um, uh, for our sins. And he has come back from the dead and lives victoriously today, having triumphed over sin and death. He lives victoriously today as the King of Kings and as the Lord of Lords. Death could not hold him down. And so why put our trust in him? Simply because this is what he's done for us. The very first thing, that you and I do in terms of our relationship to God, in terms of relating rightly to God, and in terms of following the will of God, is to put your trust in Jesus. That's what he says in verse 40 when he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, there's our word, who puts their trust in Him, who puts their confidence in Him, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And the objection immediately comes back. Sometimes it sounds something like this. Uh... Uh, that doesn't sound like it's very nice to other people who are not believing in him. Because who are the people who get raised up on the last day? Who are the people who have eternal life? Those who look on the sun and believe in him. That's kind of exclusive, don't you think? In fact, that's not kind of exclusive. That's a whole lot of exclusive. And so I'm not sure I'm buying what you're selling, pal. And so here's my response to that. It goes something like this. The, the very one who died and who rose again, Jesus also said this. I am, in the book of John, just a few chapters later, I am the way, not a way. I'm the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one, check that, no one comes to the Father but through me. There's a single door that you and I are rightly related to God. When we walk through that, that's the only way, and that is through faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. No other way were we made right with God. Well, what about, well, what about, what about? Here's the thing. Every other system, every other religious system, you put a name on it, Mormons, Muslims, anybody in between, all sorts of people, different. Listen, every one of them, every one of them says, here, here's the system by which I am going to relate rightly to God. And, and here's, here's how, what I'm going to do in order to be right with God. And the, the difference between all of that and Christianity is, now in Christianity, God is saying, here's what I have done so that you can relate rightly to me. Not, not what you do, but what I have done for you. But again, that sounds, I mean, only one way? Yes, only one way. The, the, the other way to think about this and the other way to respond to this is to say this. Um, the, the, it, is, it is universal for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. Everyone who believes in him can be made right with God. Everyone. Don't, don't miss what he says here. Again, in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of 
all that he has given me. Nothing at all, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that, how many people? Everyone. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes, well, you don't know my past. You're right, but Jesus does. And there is nothing that you've done in your past that his death and his resurrection won't pay for and give new life to. Well, you don't know my situation right now, my circumstance right now. That's right. There's nothing going on in your life that his death and his resurrection will not pay for and give new life to. I promise you that is the case. So this universal offer, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. It's for everybody. Young, old, rich, poor, male, female, black, white, red, yellow, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will receive eternal life. It is God's will that you and I be rightly related to God by putting our trust, our confidence, our faith in Jesus. That's where it starts. And that transformation process begins in us, and it begins to shape, and it looks something like this. Flip over to the book of 1 Thessalonians. This will be to the right. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. If you don't um, know where it is, just look on with your neighbor. That's fine. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. This is also God's will. Not only that we relate rightly to God, but also this. Verse 18. Excuse me, let's start in verse 16. Just catch a little context. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So God's will is not only that we relate rightly to God, but also that we are a grateful people. God intends for you and I to be a grateful people. Here's a little secret, okay? The, the, the more you practice being grateful, the more God uses that to transform you. And the more you are transformed, guess what you're going to be? Grateful. And the more you practice grateful... The more it transforms you, the more you transform, the more you're going to be grateful. And in particular, it says this um, in, in verse 18, uh, that we give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, that you and I would be marked by gratitude for the big things and for the little things, for the huge things and for the seemingly uh, small things. You go outside yesterday, anybody go outside yesterday? Anybody? And just stand there in the weather like this? Just trying to suck it all in because August is coming and you want to hold on to that day as far as you possibly can, as long as you possibly can. You just think, man, what a, we sat on our back porch last, uh, yesterday afternoon. What a glorious day. Glorious. Small thing. And then you think about all the big things that God has done for you. In the little things and in the big things, we are grateful. But here's the thing. Here's what the scripture says. It's in verse 18. Be thankful. Be grateful. In all things, not for them. Not for all things, but in all things. Don't miss that. Because being grateful in all things um, says, hey, I know that I'm in this circumstance. I know it may be difficult. I know it may be whatever. But I'm just going to be grateful um, in this moment. I'm choosing gratitude in this moment. Why? Because this is the will of God for me. This is what he wants for me. Um, <clears throat> there are circumstances that you and I go through, circumstances that you and I endure, uh, circumstances that... that uh, um, maybe are, are given to us or put upon us. And here's the thing, uh, you and I, as people who are grateful people, we know what we deserve. And because we're not getting what we deserve, we have that moment to be grateful in whatever circumstance we're in. I'll just give you a brief example. How many of you, uh, how many of you are grateful for all the traffic that's being out, out there on the Gulf Freeway right now? Anybody? 
grateful in all things, but not for them. As is often the case, the things that we're not grateful for in the moment, you put a little space between it next weekend when the traffic's uh, less and the, freeways, the freeway is more uh, open, you know, there's more lanes and stuff, are we going to be grateful then? Yes, as is the case, oftentimes it takes a little space between that moment and later for us to see what was actually happening, to be, to be grateful for that. But in this moment right here, we're going to be grateful in all things, not necessarily for them. Um, and that can express itself in a couple of ways. Number one, that we enjoy his blessings and we return thanks. It's not enough to simply enjoy his blessings, although enjoying a gift is its own form of gratitude, but also then to return thanks. So sitting out there enjoying the pretty weather, it's good to say, man, this is gorgeous weather and enjoy that. It's also good to say, thank you, God, for giving us this kind of weather. Um, uh, there's a story Jesus, uh, of Jesus in Luke 17. He heals 10 lepers. Um, uh, uh, nine of them uh, go on about their way, and one of them returns simply to say thanks. All of them enjoyed the gift. All of them enjoyed the blessing. But only one of them returned to say thanks. That's one way that this expresses itself, that, you'd be, that you're thankful in all things, not necessarily for them. Uh, and this other way, specifically as related to not for them, is we endure hard times, and we find something in those hard times that we can be grateful for. A little easier said than done. A little easier uh, to uh, uh, talk about in this moment than maybe the moment that you're living in or the moment that you have to go home to. But we endure hard times and we find something to be thankful for. And again, why is this important? Because when we practice gratitude, it transforms us. And when we are transformed, we find ourselves practicing gratitude, and it keeps going. This is how this works. Here's the thing. I know that there are at least two things that you can say thank you, God, for in the middle of whatever difficulty and hardship you're finding yourself in. Number one, you're not walking through, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not walking through that hardship alone. Scripture is very clear. Those who follow him are never, ever, 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 ever alone, ever. Ever. He's never alone. The second thing that's clear about that, that you can say thanks for, is God, I know that you're doing something in me that's going to be great down the road. Boy, it hurts right now, but I know you're doing something today that is going to bear good fruit down the road. You can say that. You can say that. I'm not alone in this. God, you're holding my hand in the middle of this. That's what Psalm 37 says. Even though I trip and fall, I'm not going to fall and hurt myself. Come on, because you're the one who holds my hand. We endure hard times, and we find something to be thankful for. At the very least, we're not alone, and God is up to something um, in our lives. He's, we're, he's shaping us in some way. So be grateful. That is the will of God for you. Relate rightly to God. Be grateful. Back up one chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is the will of God. His word clearly reveals his will. The only question is whether or not we're going to do it. Are we going to relate rightly to God? Are we going to be grateful? Thirdly, are we going to be pure? Finally then, brothers, verse 1, finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
For this is the will of God. Here we go. Lean forward, everybody. Your sanctification, specifically, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Pause right there for just a moment. The word he uses for sexual immorality immorality is the Greek word porneia. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Anybody recognize that word? Ringing a bell? Okay. Porneia. It is the broadest New Testament word for immorality, for sexual immorality. Why did Paul choose to use that right there? Because it's a catch-all word. It's saying, hey, listen, we know about some particular versions uh, of this immorality. People will invent other more, uh, you know, different immorality, and this word still catches that. Here is the will of God, that you and I be pure, that we abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. So when we talk about purity and we talk about be pure because this is the will of God for you and for me, it starts with a control of our own body and not letting its impulses control you. To be pure means to control your body and don't let its impulse control you. So the things that you see, the things that you commit your mind to, the things that you settle your mind on, the things that you think about before you go to bed, uh, the things that you uh, um, you know let, uh, let your eyes fall on on a computer screen, let your mind go to when you're stuck in traffic, whatever it may be, those things we, are, we have to control or those desires and impulses and lust will control us. Lust is simply mismanaged desire, things that are in us that don't, I mean, that get out of whack and are not managed well. And specifically, he says in verse 5, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Church family, listen to me. This is such an important thing that Paul's very clear here. The way that we handle our sexuality and this aspect of our lives is one of the lines of demarcation. It's one of the things that delineates us from the people who don't know God. Be pure, is what he's saying. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Don't let your body control you. You control your body. Um, Verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So to be pure uh, not only means to control your body but also to do good to others and don't defraud them. What do you mean by that? Well, to, to, to not defraud in this particular area would be something like this, one of two or two or three ways. Uh, taking what is not yours to take. Giving what is not yours to give. Or not giving what is yours to give. So do good to others. This area of our lives is, is, um, is designed by God to do good uh, specifically uh, to your spouse. And lastly, he says in verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So in other words, pursue holiness and wholeness in our sexuality. Pursue holiness and wholeness. Those two things always go together. That's what God wants for you and for me. Um, So just to be clear on that, the New Testament teaching, the whole counsel of the Bible teaches this. Um, that there is a, a, people say, well, where's the line? What's too far? Da, da, da. Here's the thing. If you, in your mind, can you draw a circle? Can you do that? Can you draw a circle in your mind? Okay, there's a circle. And then uh, that circle is, the, the boundary of that circle is called the covenant of marriage. Inside of that circle, the Bible has a profound word for our sexuality. You know what that word is? Yes. Outside of that circle, the Bible has an equally profound word. You know what the word is? 
No. Some people think, oh, well, I grew up around teaching, blah, 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 grew up around church. All they said, no, 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 no. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is actually yes in its proper context. Yes. There's a whole book of the Bible about it. Yes. About God's yes over this area of our lives. Um, and everything outside of the, of the marriage covenant is no. That, that's the thing. It's no. And so, well, should I, what about, if it's inside, yes. If it's outside, no. It's, it really is. It does come down to something. Um, it does come down to something that simple. Uh, what about our times, though? These are confusing times. Yes, they are confusing times. And uh, the further we go, the more complex the issues are going to get revolving, sexual, uh, revolving around sexuality. That's true. These are, these are tough days in some it's because of some of the cultural pressures and, and that kind of thing. Yes, that is true. Um, but the confusing times do not change the standard. In fact, if we in our minds could get that simple standard down, some of our things would get less confusing. Some of them. I think what undergirds and promotes confusion to so many, particularly of the young people, but to so many of these, uh, to so much in our culture, is this kind of underlying thing that in order to be a genuine, satisfied human, I have to give expression to whatever version of sexuality that I feel like in this moment. I just point you to the most human, most satisfied individual who ever walked the planet. His name was Jesus who was single and celibate, both of those things. He did not have to give expression to whatever sexuality he felt in the moment in order to live a whole life, a life marked by wholeness. So in the marriage context, yes. Outside of the marriage context, no. And you don't have to buy the lie that in order to be fulfilled as a human that you have to. That's not true. Holiness and wholeness go together. Holiness and wholeness go together. Fourth thing, so we're going to relate. This is the will of God, that we relate rightly to him by putting our trust in Jesus, that we are grateful, that we are pure, and um, flip back a few books to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. I know your fingers are staying nimble. Thank you for that. 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. Look up here for just a minute. I'm not going to talk about money. Everybody just... Breathe a sigh of relief. Don't miss verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. To us. There was a, a, a gift both ways. To God first and then to those who are around him who also follow Jesus. And so I say it this way, that, that it is the will of God that we connect with church. It is the will of God that we connect with church. In 2 Corinthians 8, let's be clear, uh, the, the expression was money. They were collecting stuff to send uh, money to the um, saints in, in Jerusalem who were encountering a famine, not unlike us collecting things uh, to send to kids who need help at Wedgwood. That's true. 
The expression was money, but, but the, the principle was connection, that they were in this thing together, that the church is the church. A church is a family. That's what it is. It's not an organization, although we are organized. It's not a particular event, although we have events. It's not a particular expression of ministry, although, goodness gracious, yes, let us have particular expressions of ministry. Church is a family. It is a network of committed relationships. It's me looking at this section right here and going, oh, y'all follow Jesus too? Let's do this together then. Oh, you people over there, y'all want to follow Jesus? Good. I got some people over here, and there's some people. Let's do this. Let's do this thing together. Let's do this together. Some people come along and they say this. Um, I don't need church in order to have a relationship with Jesus. Hear me say that. Theologically, that is 100% true. Experientially, that is 0% true. Because we need one another to walk out the things that he has for us. Church is, an, is a family. It is a network of these kind of committed relationships to say, yes, this is what we are. This is who we are. This is what God wants is for us to be connected. Um, in your bulletin, if you have one, there's a, um, a listing of our Sunday school classes and small groups that meet. It's one of the reasons we do these because we want people not just to see the back of other people's head and a guy on stage with a microphone, um, but instead we, we want people to look, be able to look in one another's eyes. If this, if this right here, Sunday morning, this moment right here is the only expression of church that you have, you're missing out on some of the best parts because the relationships, this commitment of networked relationship, uh, that, that is, that's, that's the best part of church, church it's family. Furthermore, it is not God's will uh, that you and I do life alone, and it never has been, ever. Since, since Genesis 2, God brought Eve to Adam, not so that he wouldn't be single, but so he wouldn't be alone. A picture showed up uh, somewhere this week, or two weeks ago maybe, and I just saved it because I thought, this is church right here. Anybody else see this picture when it zipped around on social media? Uh, this cat who's on the outside uh, was jumping off a bridge to do himself harm. Um, somebody came along, saw what was about to happen, and grabbed him. And other people came along and grabbed him. You can see, I don't know how much detail you can see, there's like a, some dude took off his belt and lashed him to the bridge. and uh, Some guy took off his necktie. I'm not sure what those other things are, if they're bungee cord or just rope or whatever. But they've got guys holding on. They've got restraints on because they don't want to let him go. And I thought to myself, this is, this is church. Because sometimes, sometimes we just need to be held close and know that somebody else cares about us, right? Sometimes we need to be cheered on and say, hey, listen, there's stuff worth living for. Um, sometimes just because of the stuff that's going on, we, just, we need to be held up like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Oh, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. We're church. Sometimes we need to be prevented from doing ourselves irreparable harm. Somebody needs to come along with a belt and just lash us. To the, you're, no, you can't do that. That's church. Folks, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have the Spirit of God in us. The gifts of God that the Spirit gives and the power that the Spirit gives. We need to release that into the world, yes, and into our church family because there are people in our lives who right now are just on the edge, about ready to go over, and we need to just come around and grab them, and we need to hold them close, and we need to say, hey, listen, there's stuff worth living for. I'm cheering you on, and I'm holding you up, and I'm not going to let you do harm to yourself. No, that's not going to happen. Why? Because we're church. 
We commit to that. That's what we commit to. So when we pray, this is what we're about. When we go to groups, this is what we're about. When we worship together, this is what we're about. When we celebrate communion, this is what we're about. When we give, this is what we're about. I mean, all of these things, this is what we're about. We're church. We commit to that. It is God's will that we don't do life alone, but we get to do it in relationship with others. They give themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Last thing uh, in 1 Peter, far to the right, 1 Peter. I'm wrapping up, I promise. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. It is God's will that you and I honor authority. It's God's will that you and I be rightly related to God, amen, that, uh, put our trust in Jesus, that we be grateful, yes, 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 that we be pure, yes, 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 and that we connect with others um, who are like us and follow Jesus, that we connect with church. Lastly, it is God's will, I know, that we honor authority. Verse 13, 2 Peter 2, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You want a definition of good government right there? There it is. Punish those who do evil, uh, reward those who do good, praise those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor or the king. Um, so when we talk about honoring authority, he uses this word, be subject or submit to. We're talking about encouraging, affirming, and following godly leadership. That's our response. That's our role when it comes to honoring authority. It could be at work. Uh, it could be in the home. It could be with the government, but we encourage, affirm, and follow godly leadership that we see. That, that's what it looks like. And, and um, people say, well, what about, what about, what about? Here's the thing. It is our conduct. Hear me out. It is our conduct that is the best response to any criticism whatsoever. Our conduct. That's what he says in verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You get criticized for the way that you live. It's your conduct that is the best response to that. Not your tweet. Not your Facebook posts about this, that, or the other on politics. Not your for or against the new health care act or whatever. Not your rantings. Not your hashtag. Not my presidents. Not, I mean, none of those things. It's your conduct. Furthermore, I'll just go on a limb here and say, uh, the fact that we do those things with regularity um, might actually be hurting our witness rather than helping. That's all for free. Why is this important to honor authority? It's, it's this, and we're, this is it right here. Because if we cannot submit to the authorities we can see, we will not submit to the authority we can. Uh, well, I don't know about all that. No, 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 it's true. If you're a person who doesn't regularly submit to the authorities you can see, you, will, you, are, you are a person who does not regularly submit to God that you can the authority that you How do I know that? Because our submission to the authorities that we can see has zero to do, zero to do with how much faith we have in the authorities that we can see. Anybody have a lot of faith in the government? It's not about our faith in the government. It's about our faith in God. And so us submitting to the authorities we can see, it means that we can also submit to the authorities we can't. Here's why this is important, to relate rightly to God, to be grateful, to be pure, uh, to connect with the church. 
um, and to honor authority. Here's why this is important. God has clearly revealed his word, excuse me, his will to us in his word. He's clearly revealed it to us. As I said early on, the only question is whether or not I'm going to do it. Well, but see, these things don't say anything about who I'm supposed to marry or where I'm supposed to live or what job I'm supposed to. You're right. It doesn't. But if we align our lives with what he has already said, then we can trust him to lead us in the things that we need him, uh, that we need to hear from him about. If I know that my life is in line with what he has already revealed to me, then I can trust him to reveal other things to me. Why? Because I'm going to be transformed. I mean, that's part of it. I'm going to be transformed, so I'm going to know what to do in any particular situation. But also because he promises. He promises to lead us. He promises to guide us. He promises not to leave us alone as we try to make these decisions. But why in the world would you and I think that, oh, I can just live the way that I want to, and then when it comes to decision time, go, okay, God, give me some, give me some wisdom here. Give me some guidance. If I haven't aligned my life with what he's already said, why would, I, why would I think he would trust me with things that he needs to reveal to me yet? You and I have the opportunity to live according to the will of God as it is revealed in the word of God. And as we do, we're going to find that he's guiding us in all the other areas that we need to. If we don't, we have no assurance whatsoever that he'll be leading us in the other. Because he wants us to be in line with what he's already said. So here's where we come before we come to communion. Relating rightly to God. Being grateful. Being pure. Connecting with the church and honoring authority. Those five areas. I know those are the will of God. I know they are. Why? Because they're in the word of God. Which of those, though, do you need to, right now, do business with God on? Relating rightly to God, there's something between me and God, and I just need to get that straight. Gratitude. Actually, I'm more gripe than gratitude. Like that's, I need to set that down. Purity. Connecting with the church. Honoring authority. Let's take a moment and have a moment of silent prayer, and then we'll um, take communion together, okay? But before we do, let's do the business that we need to do.